Let's pray and then we're going to jump right into the word of God today. Father, we thank you for your word. It, it is a lamp unto our feet. It, it truly is a guide to us. Uh, but Lord, it's, it's even more than that. Uh, to reduce it to simply a guide is, is to, to, to miss the fact that you are all over the pages of Scripture, that, that it is your revelation of yourself to us. And so, Lord, as we spend time in your word, even as we've spent time in worship, Lord, the, the whole goal is that we might know you and know you in a, in a closer way, in a deeper way, to deepen our walk with you. Uh, that's why we're here today. Lord, we're not here for any other reason other than to, to know you, to, to, to experience you, to, to be close to you. That's our heart's desire. So as we spend time in your word today, I pray that through your spirit, you would work in each one of our lives. Lord, we're all from so many different places, so many different backgrounds, uh, so many different even nations of the world that are represented here, so many different cultures, so many different languages. Lord, the only thing we have in common today is you. That's why we're here. We're not united around any other creed other than Christ and him crucified. So, Lord, speak to us through your word. Draw us closer to yourself, all of us in our lives where we're at, at different stages and ages and places. Yet you are drawing us deeper. You're drawing us closer to take those next steps with you. So I pray that you would help us to do that by the power of your spirit today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do after I gave you a spanking last week about bringing your Bible to church. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, open to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 is, is where we will start today. We're going to look at several passages uh, in the New Testament today. And if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of our ushers will be happy to give you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible or if you don't have one with you today, uh, you can use one of our Bibles, take it home. If you have a Bible at home, hey, take that Bible home and give it to somebody who needs a Bible. Uh, everybody needs a Bible. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 1. I, I want to start this morning uh, where I left off last week. And so I want to do a little bit of a recap, get us all on the same page, and, and then we'll, we'll move forward a little bit. So I, I want to test you this morning. I'm going to start with this phrase. We started with it last week. God is holy. There we go. God is holy. God is holy. Last week, we spent some time looking at the holiness of God and, and this, this essential element of God's nature and God's Character. We looked at Revelation chapter 4 and the, 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 the scene of the throne room of heaven. And, and we, even, we even sang that song this morning, To Him Who Sits on the Throne and Unto the Lamb. And we saw in, in Revelation chapter 4 this, this amazing scene as John was given this vision of, of the throne room of heaven. But gathered around the throne were these four creatures and they continuously are singing this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I, 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 we talked about last week how most people, most Christians even, when they think about God and who God is, the, the, the first thing that, that comes to mind oftentimes isn't the fact that God is holy. But that this is the way that God has primarily revealed himself to us in Scripture. And so we as believers in Christ, we as believers in God, we need to be thinking about God in the terms that he has revealed himself to us. And yes, God is love. There's no doubt about that. Yes, God is good. There's no doubt about that. But first and foremost, God is holy. God's love is a holy love. God's love is, uh, 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 God's goodness is a holy goodness. God's justice is a holy justice. God's wisdom is a holy wisdom. Every attribute of God flows from this essential character of God, and that is that God is holy. And so we looked at the definition of, of what that means to be holy, and we talked about a little bit how uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's a hard word for us to describe because it truly is describing something that we are not, that, that we have very little understanding of in our world. But the, the word holy, when we think about that, we typically think of the secondary uh, aspect of holiness, which is purity. 
And so when we think about holy, holiness, we think about God's moral perfection, we think about the fact that God is pure, and yes, that is true, but that really is the secondary definition. The primary definition of holiness is that God is, really the best word to describe it is other. He, he's set apart. He, he's a cut above. He's, he's unique. He's distinct. He, he's not part of his creation. He's above his creation. He, he is totally and completely separate, transcendent, high and exalted, far and above us. And the, the writers of Scripture use that language that, that the, God's ways are not our ways. Why? Because God is holy. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Why? Because God's thoughts are holy thoughts. High and exalted, not, not just you know, a, a few percentage points, not just like 0.1% high, higher than us. It says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so far is God above us. Talking about God in his splendor, God in his supreme and absolute greatness, his consuming majesty, his loftiness, infinitely above his creation, infinitely above and so we, we looked at how people throughout history in, in the Word of God, how when they encounter God and encounter God in His holiness, what their response is. And we saw time and time again that when people have a, a true encounter with the holy God, their response is, is one of fear, one of sometimes terror. Because God's holiness is so consuming. The Bible says God is a consuming fire. That, that for sinful man to be in the presence of a holy God, it, 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 it is a fearful thing. And so we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, and we, we won't take time to go there again this morning, but upon encountering God's holiness, Isaiah, what was it that he said? Woe is me. Woe is me that, you know, we typically go throughout our day thinking we're pretty good people. Thinking, you know, we're not that bad. We look around the world and we say, well, at least I'm not this. At least I'm not that. I've never killed anybody, you know. Maybe you can't say that. I don't know, but um, I hope you can say that. But we, we typically compare ourselves to one another. But when we encounter the holiness of God, all that pretense of our own goodness and self-righteousness, it becomes a stench upon us when we see God for who he is in his holiness. And so Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, Woe is me. And so we talked about the cross of Christ and the, the necessity of the cross of Christ because of our sinfulness and because of God's holiness. There exists a great chasm between humanity and God. And so Jesus came, God made flesh, the transcendent from heaven became imminent among us and dwelt among us. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the incarnation, that God became a man, that he lived without sin, that he died on the cross in the place of sinners to reconcile sinful humanity back to holy God. The necessity of the cross, the cross is, is absolutely necessary. If we're going to have any sort of relationship with God, it's only through the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Because it's only Christ who has reconciled humanity back to God. We talked about how it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. Without the cross, we are hopeless. Without the cross, we are lifeless. Without the cross, we are unable to come to God. We are unwilling to come to God. It's only the cross. It's only through the work of the, the Holy Spirit in our life that that, that opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. Did, did you know that? Did, did you know the reason why you believe in Jesus today is not because you had a really good Sunday school teacher? It's not because you went to the Billy Graham crusade at the Alamo Dome. It's not because the evangelist preached a really good sermon. The only reason you believe in Jesus Christ today 
is because the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes and opened your ears. That is the only reason. It is the only reason. The Holy Spirit works in our lives and he, he of course works through the preaching of the word of God, but it's not the evangelist, it's not the pastor. It's the Spirit of God working on our hearts. This is why Jesus, this is still my introduction, by the way, but, or my recap. But this is why Jesus said in John chapter 3 that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And that we're born again. How are we born again? Well, just as we had nothing to do with our natural birth, we also have nothing to do with our spiritual birth. It's the Holy Spirit of God that regenerates our hearts. And so Jesus says you must be born again, born by the water, natural birth, and born again by the Spirit, spiritual birth. And so now being born again, we are justified in the sight of God. This is the most amazing concept in the whole world. There's nothing more amazing than this. Justified before God. That means that we, in Christ, we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we who have been born again by the Spirit of God, that God has declared us righteous. Declared us Righteous, justified before God. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us. This is what's called imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness that we did not earn, that we did not deserve, that we could never earn on our own. A righteousness not on our own merits, but a righteousness on the merits of Christ and his work for us. And so Martin Luther, the great reformer, he called this the great exchange. That God took our sin and placed it upon Christ. On the cross, Jesus bore our sin. He made, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin. So that we could become the righteousness of God. And so God's, uh, our, our, our sin laid upon Christ. Christ's righteousness laid upon us. It, it's, it's, it's beyond words what Christ did for us. Why did he do it? Because of his love for us. Because of his love for us. To redeem us from sin and Satan and death and hell and the grave. And so we are positionally righteous before God. When God looks at me and you, he sees not our sinful state, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. Can you believe that? It's hard to believe, honestly. It's so good. The news is so good. It is the good news. That's why it's called the gospel. The good news is that when God sees those in Christ, he doesn't see our faults. He doesn't see our failures. He doesn't see our shortcomings. He doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Imputed righteousness. Declared righteous. Now again, I have to underscore that you cannot earn this. No amount of good living, no amount of godly living will earn this for you. It only is received by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We receive it by faith. That's the other part of the good news is that if we had to earn it, if there was one thing that we had to do, forget if there was 99 things, if there was one thing that we had to do to, be, to make ourselves right before God, guess what? We couldn't do it. We wouldn't do it. We wouldn't do it. So Jesus came and did the work for us on our behalf. We receive it by faith. We receive it, this gift of grace, unmerited favor. Now, we are declared righteous by God. And so when you go through the books of the Bible, especially the New Testament letters, as Paul sits down to write, as the apostle sits down to write these letters, they address the letters to the saints, to the saints that are in Ephesus, to those called to be saints in Corinth, to the saints in, in Philippi and, and in Colossae and he addresses the letters to the believers. He calls them saints. Now, do you know what the word saint means? 
It means holy ones. He sits down and he writes the letters and he says, to the holy ones in Ephesus, to the holy ones in Corinth, to the holy ones in Philippi. We are called to be saints. Now this is, this is weighty stuff. This is transcendent stuff. This is, what does this mean? Like, how am I supposed to live now with this, with this fact that I've I'm, I'm been saved, that I've been justified, that I've been declared righteous by God? What are the implications of this? That, that God himself lived and died and rose again to redeem me. Not just in a general sense, but in a personal sense. How does this affect how we live? How does this affect how we live? Maybe I should ask the question, should this affect how we live? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And in fact, the, the, the New Testament from Romans to the book of Third uh, John and Jude, the, all of the New Testament letters, all of the New Testament epistles, their primary focus is how do you live this out? How do you live now as a believer? How do you live now as a saint? How do you live now as someone who has been declared righteous, who has had the righteousness of Christ credited to your account? How does this affect how we live? Now, I have to be honest with you. There are other maybe I would say focuses um, within evangelicalism today that have very little to do with how, how we live in relationship to a holy God. And so, uh, unfortunately today, I would probably say that most Christians find themselves in one of three camps on how they view their, their faith and their relationship with God. The first group would be people that have a, their, their relationship with God is like their fire insurance policy. It's their get out of hell card. You know, they prayed a prayer one time and they got their ticket to heaven punched. And, and so I, I, I believe in Jesus, you know. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's the son of God. He's my savior. And I'm going to heaven. I believe in Jesus. And it, it, but but there's really no fruit or evidence of, of faith. There's really no walking with Christ. There's really no uh, proof, or not proof, but, but really uh, there, there, there's no evidence of, of true faith in Christ. It's, it's just treated as, well, I prayed that prayer, and I, I walked down the aisle, and yeah, I was baptized that one time, and yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. It's that fire insurance kind of faith kind of lumped into that is, well, you know, my, my, my grandparents were Christians and my parents are Christians. And so, yeah, we're, we're a Christian too. And so maybe that would be kind of the, again, the CEO Christians, the Christmas and Easter only. You know, they, they show up on Christmas and they show up on Easter and that's kind of the extent of their Christian walk. The second sort of stream, a lot of people who call themselves Christians are, are in, is this sort of stream of, well, I, I want God to bless my life. And so I will, I will be in a relationship with God to get him to bless my life. It's kind of that, I'm going to add the God card or the God factor to my life so that I can have God's blessings in my life. And so I'll, I'll relate to God, I'll pray, I'll read the word, I'll, I'll do the things I need to do to get God to bless me in my life. And then there's a third which is similar to the God bless my life and that's the, the I need Jesus to fix my life. And so Jesus fixed my marriage, Jesus fixed my finances, Jesus fixed my parenting, Jesus give me a better job, give me a good career, Jesus, help me in my relationships. It's like Jesus has the, the key to uh, unlocking just how to have a good life right here and right now. And so I'll, I'll take kind of these Jesus ideas and principles and 
and I'll put them into practice in my life so that I can have a good marriage and I can have a good job and I can have a fulfilling life. The problem with all of these views is first and foremost, they're just unbiblical. You can't find those views in the Bible anywhere. Now, is it true that those who have faith in Christ, genuine saving faith in Christ, is it true that they will be in heaven for all eternity with God? Yes, that's true. Yes, that's absolutely true. Is it true that if you walk with God that he will bless your life? Is that true? Yes, it is true. There's no doubt about it. Is it true that if you put the principles in the word of God into, into, um, into effect in your marriage and in your finances and in your parenting that you will see good fruit from that? Is that true? Yes, it's absolutely true. But this is not the primary motivation for walking with God. This is not the primary motivation behind living the Christian life to simply miss hell or to, to have a little bit of God in my life. The, it's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about being a child of God. And the problem with this, these sort of categories that I've, I've broken out for you this morning is that they have a very low view of God and they have a very high view of man. They have a very low view of God and a very high view of man. If you go to the Christian bookstore today, you'll find no shortage of, and I know some of you are worried because I haven't got to 1 Peter chapter 1 yet. Don't worry. I have my Bible open there. I'm going to get there, all right? There's no shortage of, of Christian material telling you how to do this kind of stuff. But you know what's lacking in those books? The holiness of God. The, the, the supreme transcendence of our creator. Of, of living in response to who God is. And so it starts with a low view of God and a high view of man. And what it really is teaching people is how to get God to serve you instead of you being created to serve God. It, it talks about God like he's a genie. And if we can, you know, to quote the great theologian Christina Aguilera, if we rub him the right way, we can get him to do what, he wants, what we want him to do. And most Christians today live their lives with that view of God. And so when God doesn't bless their finances, and God doesn't fix their marriage, and God doesn't heal their loved one, their faith is shipwrecked because they put their faith in the God that was there to serve them instead of the holy transcendent God who is perfect in all his ways not realizing that they were created to serve God. So how should we live in response to the fact that God is holy? Well, thankfully, we don't have to speculate. We don't have to philosophize. We don't have to grope around in the dark for answers. God has revealed it to us plainly in his word. And so 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning got us all on the same page. Here we go. We're going to start this morning in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. It says, therefore. What does that mean? That means in, in, in response to everything I've just said. Therefore, what has Peter been talking about? Peter's been talking about the fact that we've been called by God out of the world. That we are, as he puts in verse 1, elect exiles, chosen by God. That's what that word elect means, chosen by God. Now we're living as exiles. Well, what does that mean? That means we're not part of the world anymore, but we're still living in the world. We're like exiles. We're like refugees in this world today. This world is not our home. Heaven is our home. Now they're experiencing persecution, hardship. Yet he encourages them to hold on to the hope of the gospel. 
And so he says, therefore, in light of the fact that God has called you out of the world, that you're part of God's family, in light of the fact that Jesus has saved you, therefore, prepare your minds for action. You could also translate that as battle. And be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says that there is a grace yet to be revealed to us. Though we have been saved by grace, we have been saved in our inward man, our our spirit saved, justified. There is a coming salvation. There is a coming grace that is to be revealed when Jesus returns. That, of course, is the fullness of the salvation that we will receive in Christ, which is a resurrected body. Amen. So that we will be saved not only spirit, but also spirit, soul, and body. And he says, set your hope fully on that grace. And so where do we place our hope as Christians today? Do we place our hope in the stock market? Do we place our hope in the price of Bitcoin? Do we place our hope in the politicians in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> no, I think I don't care what political party you're from. You can say no to that. Amen? No. Do we place our hope in our occupation, in our career? Do we place our hope in our children? Well, I'm going to get them golf lessons. They're going to be the next Tiger Woods. That's my retirement plan. I'm putting it all, forget the 401k. I've got the next Tiger Woods. He's my gravy train. But how many, we laugh. We laugh. But the baseball fields are full right now. The soccer fields are full right now. Why? Because of people placing their hope in their children to somehow bail them out one day. Listen, your children is not your retirement plan. Sorry, that's a secondary message. We place our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in this life. Your hope as a Christian is not in this life and what you can get from this life. Our hope is in eternity. Our hope is in the return of Christ. Our hope is in the completeness of what Christ purchased for us. And and I, I think we should see that so much more clearer today than we did two years ago. Amen? Can, can, we, can we at least acknowledge the goodness of God in the fact that he has, has revealed to us the futility uh, and the temporary status of this life? That the things that we hold so dear to us can be in a moment taken away from us? That the things that we, place have, that we have placed our hope in can overnight be stripped from us? This is what they're experiencing that Peter is writing to them about. They're suffering persecution for their faith in Christ. He says, put your hope in eternity. Put your hope in the finished work of Christ. He says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for battle. And be sober-minded. Think clearly about these things. Verse 14, he says, to do it as obedient children. We're to obey God as our Father. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You see, before we come to Christ, we're ignorant of our sin. We're ignorant of our foolishness. We're ignorant of our folly. Before we come to Christ, sin is just who we are. It's how we live. It's our natural mode of operation. Amen? You don't don't have to try. It it just happens. You just wake up and, how can I sin today? But he says, now, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
Our minds have been, uh, uh, the, the revelation of God has, has illuminated our minds. When we come to Christ, when we hear the gospel preached, when God saves us, our eyes are open to our sin and our sinful state before a holy God. Whereas before we were ignorant, whereas before we didn't see it and understand it, when the Holy Spirit penetrates the hardness of our hearts, all of a sudden that ignorance is gone. And we see who we are before a holy God. He says, now don't, don't be conformed again to the passions of your former ignorance. But, so instead of that, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here he's quoting from the book of Leviticus. The Old Testament, as God spoke to the, the saints in the wilderness. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. What he's saying there is, listen, we are going to have to stand before God one day. Who is holy? And that should put the fear of God in you. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise instruction and knowledge. That the fact that we have to stand before a holy God... He says we should conduct ourselves through the time of our exile. What is that? That's the time of this life with the fear of God. Knowing that you were ransomed, bought back from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And, and what paid our ransom? Not with perishable things as silver or gold. God didn't ransom us with money. God, God didn't pay a down payment in dollars and cents to ransom us. No, but we've been ransomed, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a spotless lamb without blemish. What he's saying in a nutshell is that now that we are born again, now that we have put our faith in Christ, we should live a different kind of life than the life we lived before we were born again. There should be a, a distinct difference between the way God's people live and the way that the world lives. And so he puts it this way. He says, be holy as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. He quotes from Leviticus, but Leviticus doesn't just say this once. It says it over and over and over again. When someone repeats themselves, they're doing it so that we don't miss the point. Amen? So Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 18.44, for I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, because I am holy. Verse 45, for I, the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, so that I would be your God, therefore be holy, because I am holy. And it's not just the book of Leviticus, Exodus 19.6. Unto me you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus twenty two thirty one. you are to be to me a holy people. Jesus in Matthew 5, 48, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Now, I have to be honest, I'll, I'll confess to you this morning, there have been times in my life where I looked for some sort of Bible loophole out of this, these passages. Certainly there's a way that what God is saying isn't what it says right here. Certainly he's not saying that we have to be holy. Uh, certainly that's not what he's saying. I've looked at times in my life for, for, for ways to, 
to not have to obey this command. Well, why? Because it is so staggering. And at times it can seem so hopelessly impossible. How in the world can I be holy and live a holy life? But let me tell you what it means for us to be holy. We need to look at the definition of holy again. Just as the the primary definition of holy is we look at God who is apart, he is, he is other, he, he is set above. So God has called us to be set apart from the world. Do, do you see that? J- just as God is unique and, and distinct from his creation, God has called his people to be unique and set apart from the world and set apart for service unto God set apart from the world, called out from the world. So there's a distinction. There's a separation between us and the world. And we're set apart for service unto God, to serve God. And then that secondary quality of holiness, we look at God's moral perfection, His moral purity. And so we, as God's people, set apart from the world, called out of the world, are called to pursue Purity in our dealings, purity in our character, purity in our morality. How we live our lives as believers is to be rooted in who God is. You see, the, the, the idea that I'll just, I'll just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on my life and I'll, I'll, he'll bless this and he'll bless that. Listen, you're not called to sprinkle a little bit of God in there. You're not called to, to put a little, you know, a little slice of God on Sunday and then you've got 150 other hours left in the week. No, it's that God infiltrates and permeates every single hour, every single moment, every single second of every waking day. I'm called to be holy. You're called to be holy. It says in all your conduct. So it's not just how can Jesus fix my marriage, but how can I live a life of holiness in my marriage? It's not how can I, how can Jesus bless my career? It's how can I honor a holy God and and practice holiness at my workplace? You see how they're totally different? How, how can I have God bless this or bless that? No, how, how is it that in light of God's holiness, how has he called me to live today? God is holy. We have been called to be holy. And of course, this dates all the way back. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where mankind was created in the image of God. Our, our, our creative design is to reflect the, the, the nature and the character of God. Ephesians chapter 1, flip over there with me quickly. We're going to speed up here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen, God, before the foundation of the world, God chose you, called you, Not to simply be saved, but to be holy. Not simply to just come to church on Sundays, but to live a life that he says is blameless before God. And he did this, why? In love. Verse 5 says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Just as God is holy and set apart, so we are called to be holy and set apart from the world and unto God. Listen, you have to understand, dear Christian, you're not just anybody. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. You're not just anybody's kid. You're God's kids. And we represent the holy God everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. You're a child of God. You know, when I was a kid, I was growing up. I've told you guys this a hundred times. My dad drilled it into us. You're not just anybody's kid. You're my kid. You don't, you don't just live how anybody else lives. You're living the way I'm telling you how to live. Why? Because I'm his kid. It's the same with God. It's absolutely the same with God. When we come to Christ, we come broken. We come broken. Listen, if, you're, if, if, if you call yourself a Christian today and you've never been broken because of your sin, you're, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. We come to the cross of Christ broken, humbled. Woe is me because of our sin. And we live every day the rest of our life there. Walking through life, now not living in sin and not pursuing sin, but instead pursuing righteousness and holiness because we're children of God. Chosen from the foundation of the world to be blameless. Now, of course, we've been declared righteous, but we're not yet righteous yet in all of our living. And so now we're called, though we're clothed with the righteousness of God, we're called to pursue righteousness and holiness. The fact that my eternal destiny is one where I will be morally perfect, where I will be cleansed finally and fully of all sin, shouldn't that affect the way I live now? If Jesus has truly broken the power of sin in my life, as the word of God declares, shouldn't I walk in holiness and righteousness? Now, I know this isn't a popular message today because, well, for a lot of reasons, it's not easy. That's one. It's, it's a hard message. The fact that we're called to holiness. Nevertheless, it doesn't diminish the fact that it is true. It is true. And we must not, as God's kids, flip over with me to Romans chapter 6. We must not abuse the grace of God and use it as a license to sin. Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Another translation says, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. Flip over to Romans chapter 12. Verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says, therefore, therefore, again, this word therefore, the, the only reasonable response to the grace of God in our lives is that we live the rest of our lives for the glory of God. It's the only reasonable response. 
He says to live as a living sacrifice that we, we present all of ourselves, even our own bodies to God. And we say, God, how is it that you want me to live this life? He says it's only reasonable and that in doing that, we're worshiping God. You know, worship is not just the songs that we sing. Worship is the way we live our lives. So he says, do not be conformed to this world. Again, this word conformed, it was in 1 Peter chapter 1 as well. Don't let the world form you. Don't let the world shape you. Don't let the values and the ideologies and, and the, 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 the priorities of the world inform who you are and your life's decisions. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, which, by the way, is passing away. But instead of that, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So instead of letting the, war, the world form us, instead of letting the world shape us, instead of letting the world form our marriages and how we interact with our spouse in marriage, instead of the, letting the world form our parenting, instead of letting the world form our job and our career, we let God's word transform us. To be transformed, he says, by the renewal of your mind. Well, how do we renew our mind? The only way to renew your mind is through the spiritual disciplines. Prayer, worship, studying the word of God. It's the only way to renew your mind. There's no three, you know, three quick tricks and tips on how to have a renewed mind. No, it's just time. In the word, time, in prayer, time, in worship. That's it. There's no shortcut. There's, there's no bypassing this. There, there's no you know, toll booth that you can pay a little bit of money and, and get around the traffic. No, the only way to renew your mind, to have your mind transformed, is through the spiritual disciplines. I wish I could, I wish I could sprinkle fairy dust all, all over you and give you a renewed mind. I wish I could do it. It's not the way it works. If you want to have a renewed mind, instead of being conformed to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, it's through the spiritual disciplines. It's by spending time, T-I-M-E, in the Word. Time. Time. I'm not talking about seconds. I'm talking about hours. Hours. In the Word. Time. In prayer. Not just, dear Jesus, bless my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. No, time in prayer. Time in worship. This is the only way to live a life that is renewed with a renewed mind, with a transformed mind. I don't want to preach too hard today. I, I just, I, I want to share this with you in love, but majority of people that call themselves Christians today spend more time watching TV than reading the Bible. The, more, the majority of people who call themselves Christians today spend more time on Facebook than in prayer or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or Twitter or Pinterest or whatever your vice is online. Look, if we're doing that, our minds are being shaped, are being conformed by the world. And not by the word of God. And so it's no wonder that when a year like 2020 happens, where it's unprecedented, the virus, the political season, the election, so many people who call themselves Christians are just walking around like, what is going on? I don't understand. What's all this? Listen, if your mind is conformed by the word of God, you're ready for action. You're ready for battle. It might take you a few minutes to get your bearings, but it's not going to take you three months to figure it out. If, if, if we're allowing the world to shape us, we're going to get the results of the world. We're going to get broken marriages. We're going to get kids that don't love God. It's this right here, folks. 
It's this. There's no, it's not a secret. It's not a secret. People who claim to have the secrets to these things, they're trying to sell you their stupid book that's full of lies. Right here. Right here. There's only one way to have a renewed mind. Discipline yourself. How often do we hear that word today, discipline? Not a whole lot. I could go on a rant about that. I've already done it in the past, so I will will spare you today. Word, prayer, worship. Oh, by the way, community is another one. Fellowshipping with other believers. Iron sharpening iron. So important. So important. Don't isolate yourself. Grow in community. Grow in fellowship. My final passage I'm going to have you turn to today. Sorry, I came back from vacation last week and I got, I missed three weeks, so I have to make it up, okay? So, Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verse 16. Paul says, but I say, and again, The book of Galatians was written to people that thought they could be saved through their own good works. They they thought that it was faith in Jesus plus their own good works that would merit salvation. And so they've got it all out of whack. But now he's giving them some practical instructions and he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify or fulfill the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So what he's saying here is that we are in the flesh, we are in this body, this body that is corrupted by sin, that has in our flesh sinful desires, but we're also filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so he says, walk by the spirit, the leading of the spirit, And don't follow the desires of your flesh. And that the desires of the spirit are against that of the desires of the flesh to keep you from doing what you want to do. The Holy Spirit is within us. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, therefore, the works of the flesh are evident. So he gives this list of the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality. Impurity sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, imni, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I need to preach a message on envy and covetousness because it is the predominant spirit of our day. I'm not going to do that right now. Divisions, envy, drunkenness, Orgies. And then for all of you who say, well, my thing's not on that list, he says, and things like these. (laughs) Notice here that this list doesn't only have actions, but also attitudes of the heart. You see, I'm not talking to you about, well, just don't go, don't go out to the bars and stop watching movies. And listen, anybody can stop doing that. That doesn't take some sort of, you know, amazing move of God that I stop going to the movies or stop whatever. I'm not talking about just some sort of external, you know, holiness that that is just a pharisaical way of just putting your own goodness on display. That's not what I'm talking about. And that's not what the Bible's talking about either. What the Bible's talking about is not only our actions and deeds, but also the attitudes of our hearts. The, the inside of our hearts. And so he, he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, if you're living a life that is marked by a lifestyle of this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because you're not one of God's kids. That's what he's saying. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against these things there is, so, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You want to know what holiness looks like? It's this right here. This is what holiness looks like. A life that is marked by the fruit of the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the essential attributes and character traits of God Almighty who is holy. God calls his people to strive for these things in our lives. These attitudes in our hearts. Strive for love. Strive for joy. Pursue these things. Put them into practice in your life. 2 Timothy 2.22 says to flee youthful passions but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord in a pure heart. We're not just running away from something. We're running to something. We're not just fleeing the world. We're running to God. We're to be pursuing righteousness, pursuing holiness, pursuing love and joy and peace and patience in our lives. And God has given us his spirit, the Holy Spirit. We haven't even talked about that. Who takes up residence in our body to help us produce holiness in our lives. The Holy Spirit's not only called the Holy Spirit because he is holy, which he is, but he's also called the Holy Spirit because he helps the believer put up, he helps the believer to become holy in their life and in their living. And notice here that that. These are called the fruit of the Spirit. I'm closing my Bible so you can all take a big, deep breath. These are called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. What this means is that we plant the seeds. We water the seeds, but God makes it grow. You see, we, we, we think, well, well, if God wants me to be holy, he'll just have to make me holy. So I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to, you know, not do anything. I'm just going to sit here and watch TV until God just zaps me and makes me holy. No, these are the fruit of the Spirit. Just like the farmer who wants to grow a harvest, whatever it is, if it's a harvest of corn, he doesn't just sit on his couch and say, well, if God wants there to be a cornfield there, he'll make a cornfield there. No, he goes out and he cultivates the land he plants the seed, he waters the seed, and God makes it grow. It's the same for us as believers. We have to cultivate our hearts. We have to cultivate our lives. We have to get rid of the stumbling blocks, and we have to put into it the right things. Again, the Word of God. And then God makes it grow. God brings the fruit. God brings the joy. God does the part that we can't do. But we, it is fruit. He makes it grow. But we have to cultivate the land, our heart. We have to plant the seed, the word of God. We have to see that it is watered and nurtured, worshiping God, praying in community, in church. And then God will make it grow. But you can't think that you will live a holy life totally separated from the word of God, totally separated from other believers, totally separated, a life devoid of prayer and community and worship, and you think you're going to live a holy life. Listen, it's not going to happen. You're just going to be sucked back into the world constantly. And so we are called to pursue these things to, to strive earnestly for them, to live our lives as a living sacrifice, fleeing evil, pursuing holiness. Again, we can only do this because God and his work of salvation in our lives. We don't do this to make ourselves acceptable to God, but it's because I have been accepted by God in Christ. How now shall I live? And unfortunately, many who call themselves Christians today are pursuing anything and everything other than holiness. But holiness is what we're aiming for. Holiness is the intention. Holiness is the goal. Holiness is the finish line. Not how, how much of this stuff do I have to do to get God off my back? 
That's not the attitude in the heart of a born-again believer. That's the attitude in the heart of someone trying to use God to get what they want. That thing that they want, that they're using God for, that's called their idol. And until you lay that idol down at the foot of the cross and accept God for God, holy, repent of your sin of idolatry, you are still outside of the faith. You are still outside of the fellowship. You are still outside of the family of God. Listen, there's a higher way to living than how much can I get away with and still make it into heaven. There's a higher way of living. This world is desperate for the church to wake up and to pursue God in the way that God has called us to live. Pursue holiness. Chase it. Put sin to death in your life. Organize your life in such a way that the fruit of the Spirit can grow, that it's not being choked out by all of the nonsense in the world.